Welcome to the Casting Academy podcast, where we explore the topics that matter most in healthcare and radiology, featuring thought leaders who are defining the future of imaging practice and leading transformation in patient care. Brought to you by Castling, an advanced partner of Siemens Health and Ears. Hello, I'm your host, Kyle Salem, recording from Castling headquarters in Omaha, Nebraska. Today, we're talking about healthcare and healthcare investing with our special guest, Rod Markin. Uh, Rod and I have known each other for a number of years, and so first I'll say welcome, Rod. Thanks. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, you know, I, I could probably do a, a bit of an intro, but I think it's probably easier to, to let you give the audience just a little bit of a, of a sense of your background. Um, you've got a number of yeah. degrees, a number of experiences, and, and then talk yeah. a little about where you are now. So I'll let you start. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I, um, I grew up in and around Lincoln, Nebraska, and uh, was fortunate to be the son of an engineer. So I, uh, I grew up with his philosophy, which is... Uh, you know, engineering, and one of one of his favorite sayings was, "We don't buy it, we build it." So we pretty much built everything you could think of between uh, Heathkit oscilloscopes and Heathkit stereos and Heathkit walkie-talkies and buildings and pouring concrete. In fact, the only thing we never did was HVAC, <laughs> but we did we did everything else. And uh, so it was a it was a lot of fun growing up. There was always a project. There was always something to do, and always something to think about. And uh, and Probably most important, always a problem to solve. So we yeah. spent a lot of time talking about how to solve certain problems, which was great, great experience. Yeah, en- engineers certainly always are focused on let's find the problem, solve the problem. H- how exactly. how'd that push you then towards a healthcare career? What what events kind of pushed you that direction? Well, I was uh, always seemed to gravitate towards healthcare and really enjoyed uh, biology, uh, especially early on. Of course, you. You know, you don't really get into anything serious when you're in junior high and early high school, but you mm-hmm. do get to dissect a frog or a little piglet or uh, something like that. So ha- had some pretty good experiences with that. Had a, had a few medical um, issues. You know, we were always banging ourselves up and getting stitches. And and uh, so, you know, it, it was interesting going to the doctor, had allergies, had allergy shots every week for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And and so I was kind of fascinated by it, you know, although as at that age, you really don't know anything. You just get fascinated right. by it. And uh, so then I went to uh, Wesleyan University or Nebraska Wesleyan University in Lincoln, and I got a degree in chemistry and a, uh, I got a minor in math and a minor in physics because that was kind of part of the part of the plan. And and I applied to medical school in my first uh, application to medical school, I was uh, told that I was a little wet behind the ears and wasn't smart enough to go to med school. And so uh, uh, I, uh, my dad took me down to the chemical engineering department at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. And after about 30 minutes of discussion with those folks, they said, you know, you really belong over in the chemistry department, not chemical engineering with the biochemistry guys. And so I, I went over there and, and uh, signed up and got, got in the PhD program and finished, um, finished the PhD program. In my last year, I applied to medical school and um, had another interview, at which time the, the person who interviewed me, unbeknownst to me, was the chairman of the internal medicine department at that time, hmm. 
who said, why didn't they let you into med school? And I said, you know, I don't know why they didn't let me into med school. And he said, I don't know either, but you're going to med school. And, you know, closed the file and, you know, that was that. Was that. that? And two weeks later, I got a letter saying you're going to med school. So, wow. so I went to med school and had a great time, really enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed all my education. Um, after, you know, you've got a PhD, so you know what that's like. It's yep. a kind of independent study as opposed to medical school where you've, you know, 153 cattle in a class and they run you through a cattle shoot and, <laughs> you know, give you a little star every month. And by the time you're done, you get an MD degree. Everybody does the same thing, basically. And, and so it was a real break to go from PhD level graduate school to go to medical school where everything was predetermined. You just showed up and did the work. Huh. Yeah. And uh, so it was a whole, it was, it took a while to get used to it. One of my professors, uh, who's just retired, his name is Bob Benhammer, and he was the assistant dean for um, medical education in the, in the, and admissions in the medical school. And after about a month, I went up to him and said, you know, this is, this is a lot of memorization. There's no theory. There's no problems to solve. And he said, you know, hang in there, you'll get used to it. And after about three months of memorizing body parts and so forth. I kind of got used yeah. to it, and the rest is history. Yeah, that's very but, different, certainly, than than what we're used to when you talk about a graduate engineering or science degree. Oh, yeah. You're, you're really more theory, and where is the application, and how does it fit, and how does it work, yeah. as opposed to memorize. Exa exactly. E yeah, exactly. So um, I, when I was in medical school, I decided I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. So I went to the Mayo Clinic for a year, spent a year in the neurosurgery program at the Mayo Clinic. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was interesting. The Mayo Clinic's a fascinating organization, and they do a lot of things that I think are the right way to practice medicine. Yep. In the neurosurgery, neurology area, when you were a, the patient didn't move, the physicians moved. And so there was always somebody assigned to the neurology clinic from neurosurgery. And if they needed a neurosurgical consult, you know, they just kind of pulled you into the room. And, and the patient was there with all of their x-rays and all their medical information. And you could make a decision on the spot what you need to do. You know, most mm -hmm. of the rest of the world, you'll get a second appointment sometime when it's convenient for somebody else. So right. it's a really nice, really nice system. So yeah. uh, and I came back here and, uh, you know, when I graduated from medical school, which is a long time ago, uh, you know, you could get a license right out of medical school. And so most of my medical school class took an exam called FLEX, the federal licensure exam. And so I would say 45 to 50 days after I graduated from medical school, I had a license to practice medicine in Nebraska. Mm. And, uh, and so when I came back, then I, uh, I had a wife, I had two children, and uh, I, I jumped into a pathology residency um, because it was available outside of this matching. We have this computer dating program called yep. the match. Yep. And, uh, and so I got into the uh, pathology department thinking I would be working in the clinical lab in chemistry, kind of fell in love with anatomic pathology, looking under the microscope. And, uh, and so I worked part-time for three years at Bergen in the emergency room while I was uh, doing my path residency. And then we started this liver transplant program July 1st of 85, and I still remember um, my boss at the time was a gentleman named David Pertillo. He was a pediatric and infectious disease pathologist. And, and so, <clears throat> excuse me, I was uh, in my uh, office and he came down to my office and he said, I need to see you right now. And you know, he just, he just looked like a raging bull. And so we go to his office and we, he shuts the door and I sit on his couch and 
he sits on his chair and he says, uh, I need a liver pathologist. And I said, okay. And he said, you're the liver pathologist. And my, my PhD work was in liver metabolism. So, oh. so that was the connection that, that he made. And he said, here's the deal. If you'll be our liver pathologist, I'll give you a job. And I said, well, you know, I mean, it would really be good to have a job. And uh, I probably should speak with my wife about this first. And he said, well, I need to know now. And I said, well, you're not going to know now because I'm going to go home and talk to my wife. So he says, okay, you got to tell me by 9 o'clock the next morning. And, of course, in retrospect, it was, everything's clear because the uh, chairman of internal medicine was the liver doctor who started the transplant program. And, and you know, he was emphatic that he have something and he have it right now. Right. And so the chairman, my chairman, was responding to that. So... We started liver transplant program July first of nineteen eighty five, and uh, you know the rest of the rest of that is uh, history. It'll be thirty five years this summer. Right, and it's um, grown to be one of the preeminent liver transplant programs of, in the world, actually. Right. Oh yeah, it's a it's a fabulous program, and it's a really interesting. Um, you know, transplant and oncology are really the team sports right now, and in healthcare because yep. you've got to have, you got to have a lot of different brains with a lot of different experience and expertise helping, helping solve these problems. And so tr transplant and oncology is really where the team sports are. Yeah. So as you were working as a pathologist in the lab, you had an opportunity then to kind of get involved in a little bit of product development, kind of that build it mentality yeah. from the engineer space. Ta yeah. Talk a little about how, what you did well, and how that worked. Yeah. Well, we so uh, early on we had a lot of uh, we had a lot of interactions with uh, what we call in vitro diagnostics manufacturers like Abbott Laboratories and Beckman and Coulter, which were yep. separate at the time. And uh, probably in 1986, when people realized that we were serious about the transplant business, and I think we were the fifth liver transplant program in the country in 1985, mm -hmm. the folks from Abbott Laboratories came to us and said, you know, there's this drug cyclosporin and we're trying to work on an immunoassay test that's very simple, and uh, we'd like you to, to help us with the FDA work for that. And so our lab uh, basically did the laboratory FDA-related work, not the paperwork and the right. submission, but the, but the lab testing for that. And they, got their, um, they had their uh, product uh, FDA-approved. And so on this device called a TDX, which was a rapid immunoassay, you know, we could we could run forty or fifty of those, um, you know, in thirty minutes. Where before it would take us six or eight hours with this uh -huh. radio immunoassay to get it done, and and so it was a big breakthrough. Um, but in terms of of developing products, um, you know, healthcare goes through all these gyrations in terms of reimbursement and changes, and you know, some sometimes we forget history, so we do the same thing three or four times. Right. But. Um, one day I was in a meeting, I was running the chemistry section of the department in the laboratory, and a gentleman named Carl Butler, who was the CFO of the hospital, uh, said to me in this uh, meeting about budget, said, you got to find a better way to run the laboratory because uh, we're not going to be able to afford to do it the way we do it now. And so hmm. I uh, had been reading about, you know, robotic applications of this, that, and the other thing, and there weren't really many in the laboratory, uh, if any. And uh, so I went, oh, I found one guy in Japan named Masahita Sasaki, and I sent him a letter, and he sent me a letter, and I invited myself over to his laboratory and spent a week over there. And he's, 
uh, would really be considered the father of clinical laboratory automation and came back and, you know, he did it his way, but, you know, we have a little bit different style here in North America. So I started working on this uh, project and, uh, and we developed a laboratory automation system and our claim to fame was it was all software driven. So it was huh. not about the hardware, it was about the software. And we created a uh, process control system that fit with how things are done in the clinical laboratory in the United States and Canada. Wow. And, uh, and then we uh, ended up with about 16 or 17 patented technologies, which I licensed from the university. And we started up uh, our second startup company. Our first startup company was a soft, was software for grade school teachers that my wife at the time was a huh. grade school teacher. And after we sold about 1,400 copies of that for 1995 or whatever, we didn't think we were really going to get very far. And so we shut that off. And then I went on to do this this next project. And, um, and we ended up developing, uh, you know, some pretty, I think, pretty nice technology. At the end of the day, we sold the, uh, we had two divisions, one was in the US and one was in Canada, we sold the one in the US to Abbott Laboratories, and we sold the uh, other, the second company in Canada to Cerner Corporation. Ah, okay. Down in uh, Kansas City. Yeah. So you've worked with two and two really so, big players in that process. Yeah, two really big players, and for and for what it's worth, having you know had a lot of experience now in buying and selling companies, um, these these people were um, very good to work with. They were very straightforward. They didn't pull any punches, and um, you know they're out, outstanding business development folks to, uh-huh. to to work with. And we've run into a few that. I would not consider outstanding, but Cerner, <laughs> Cerner and Abbott were outstanding. Yeah, do you think that's a Midwestern thing? Yeah, I think I do. Th- I do think it's a Midwestern thing, and uh, and you know we we just uh, we just um, had a, a company sale this week, and uh, and we sold it to another company. Uh, we had a, a cancer diagnostics company mm-hmm. that we sold to another larger cancer diagnostics company. And um, it was, it, it's been grueling to get through that process and, you know, nit, nitpicking and grinding away at you and trying to, you know, reduce any possibility of having, um, you know, excess working capital contribution come in our direction and, yeah. you know, very, just really um, t- tough, tough guys. Yes. Worrying about leaving pennies on the table when really, when in reality right. it's all about dollars. Exactly. Oh yeah, exactly. So uh you know, my hats off to Cerner and to Abbott for the way that they uh, the way that they do business. Yeah, well, good, good. So, you have this career in as a as a physician working as a in in the pathology department. You start up the lab automation piece, two divisions of that. Talk a little about what you're what you're doing now after a couple of decades yeah. in the in the field. So, so I have, um, I guess, a couple of hats that I wear. I you know I have been on the faculty starting as an instructor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center July 1st of 1985 with our transplant program. And, um, and I still work there, and uh, they still pay me, which is really kind of nice. <laughs> and um, I've, I've had the great part about working at the, at the med center is I've had so many different job opportunities. So I you know, started off as basically kind of a crank and grind pathologist, had a lot of development opportunities, was the vice chairman of that department. And then I uh, ran the medical practice. It was called University Medical Associates and subsequently UNMC Physicians. Uh I was responsible for that for about 13 years. 
and uh, lear learned a lot about how you manage groups of extraordinarily intelligent people, which is uh, not a simple process. Um, the one thing I learned about healthcare professionals in that process is that uh, what they really want you to do is listen to them because they spend almost every day and every night and every holiday and every weekend listening to other people complain about things. And this holds true for physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, and nurses. And, and they also understand that every answer can't be yes, so that it's about 50% no and 50% yes. They just want you to listen to them. And so I kind of made a 13-year sub-career out of listening to people and trying to help them resolve their, their issues. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, it was very gratifying. I was the interim dean of the medical school for uh, about 18 months. And then I got a job as the chief technology officer at the university for about five years. And, uh, and then, you know, so we, we did a, uh, what we call affectionately referred to as a merger between Clarkson Hospital and University Hospital in 1997. And um, as all these kind of mergers and joint operations go, you know, things change and then become the same again. So we, we separated information technology on the healthcare side from the university side and um, and then after everyone kind of it's it's kind of like that generational cycle, you know, after a generation, the new people came in and said, well, this doesn't make any sense. So we put uh, IT back together again, yep. uh, the hospital side and the university side. And and of course, we share the same network in an 18 square block area. So it's hard to segregate. Right. But so I, I stepped down from the um, from the uh, chief technology officer job and they gave me a another responsibility for uh, something called Unitech, which is our tech incubator between University of Nebraska Omaha and UN University of Nebraska mm -hmm. Medical Center. So I've been overseeing that for about four years, and that's a, it's a concept, but it's also a physical structure. So at uh, 40th and Harney Street here in Omaha, we've got a two-story building that we have, um, we've cleaned up a little bit. We bought it from the Red Cross and you know, we, yep. we cleaned it all up, but not too nice because the nicer the facilities, the less work gets done because <laughs> everybody, you know, in a startup phase assumes you have plenty of money sure. if you've got really nice facilities. So sure. we, you know, we brought it up to, we brought it up to code and we brought it up to minimal university standards, but it's, it's not the Taj Mahal. So, uh, we've got about nine different companies right now incubating. Yep. We have inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria. And uh, so you, you either get something done in two years or you're out, or you start generating a lot of revenue and you got a lot of employees and you're out. Right. So it's, it's really a hatchery. Right. And, uh, and so I've been, I'm responsible for that. I'm responsible for something called the Behavioral uh, Health Education Center for Nebraska. We call it Beacon to try to improve um, the numbers of folks that go into behavioral health, psychiatrists and yep. nurse practitioners and so forth. And, so certainly uh, a shortage here. There's a there's def, a definite shortage, and uh, and then I I all I also am a vice president in the hospital system, Nebraska Medicine, and have some responsibility for what we call network development, which is business development, mm. and um, and you know to increase the numbers of patients and uh, increase our reach across Nebraska. Yeah. Wow, lots so, of hats. So yeah, plenty plenty of hats. Uh, you know I. I've you know, never been bored since I set foot on campus. I've never been bored. I've had a great time. Yeah, so I've, I've, always, I've always known you to, to, I didn't check today, but I, I don't think I've ever seen you not have a pair of cowboy boots on. Yeah. Uh, so is that from your upbringing or is that? 
adopted yeah. later in life? No, I, I think I've worn cowboy boots every day since I was nine years old. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, uh, I, I, I like them. They're comfortable. You could, I can wear them all day and all night long. Yep. And, um, they're not everybody's thing. Um, you know, I have, I have had people tell me it's really weird footwear at which time I respond and say, you know, those little loafers with the little kind of tassels, that's kind of weird footwear. So <laughs> everybody's got a, everybody's got a perspective. When I went to the Mayo Clinic, I showed up and I showed up in a pair of boots and the, the, the chief of neurosurgery, the chair of that department, who unfortunately had, has passed away since then, he, he hauled me in the office and he says, you can't wear cowboy boots were at the Mayo Clinic. And I said, well, that's all I've got except a pair of tennis shoes. And he said, well, what do you mean that's all you've got? And I said, that's all I wear is boots. And and he got really disgusted and said, well, just keep them clean. <laughs> so, uh, well, it's, you, you at know. least now we know you have hats to go with the boots. You know, yeah. Whether they'd be job hats or whatever. And yeah. that keeps you busy. Yeah. Let's, let's talk a little about some of what you're doing in the, you know, not necessarily specifically Unitech, but just even in that tech space of yeah. understanding yeah. kind of What's going on in healthcare? Are there themes you're seeing where certain types of businesses are needed, yeah. or at least being yeah. successful from an incubation standpoint? Uh, well, one, one, you know, one big, um, I guess, trend, if you want to call it that, is uh, is is really the genetic evaluation of tumors and other and other diseases, but in particular tumors. So this is really change the way oncology happens. So as a pathologist, you know, we're, we're the ones who really make the cancer diagnosis uh -huh. by looking under the microscope. And, um, and, and so, you know, I would say 10 years ago, I would look at 10 colon cancers and I would think they all look the same, but it turns out that there are 10 different diseases. And, and in retrospect, this all makes perfect sense because everybody's had a relative that has had cancer and some of those relatives had cancer and, and got sick and died very, very rapidly. So I have a really close friend who was functionally the older sister I never had. Tur turns out that, you know, I didn't, I didn't, she worked in the laboratory at the med center and I didn't get to know her family until afterwards. Other, but, but, you know, in retrospect, I knew two of her brothers who went to our medical school. It's just that she had, she had a maiden name and yep. I mean, a married name and they had, her maiden name, and I never put two and two together until one time I was out at their feed and seed store in Gretna and figured out what was what was going on. But she got diagnosed in uh, 2008, summer of 2008, with uh, stage uh, C three stage three C breast cancer, and my son's mother in law got diagnosed on 9/11 hmm. uh, with the same type of cancer and not a dissimilar histologic cancer. And my son's mother-in-law is still alive almost 20 years later. Yep. And, and my friend lasted ab about, you know, I don't, not 20 months, 19 months, something like that. And in, in retrospect, if we would have been doing the genetics, we probably would have found out that those were genetically two different, two different tumors. Right. But we treated them the same. And so now we can drive treatment based upon genetic factors. And you've seen in the on TV, probably in the print media, Keytruda and some of these other yep. kinds of drugs that are specific for certain tumor markers or certain, you know, genetic defects. And so that's a, that's a huge space. You know, we just, we just sold one of those diagnostic companies this week. I mentioned it okay. earlier. And, yep. and, um, and so now that everyone's figured out that this is really the direction we're going to go in cancer diagnostics and cancer treatment, then everybody's aggregating all of these small companies and 
and and bringing them together. Yeah, that's got to be so the, that whole genomic proteomic sort of space of really understanding, you know, uh, at a micro level almost, right? Instead of just saying, yeah. you know, cancers yeah. at this macro level, but now at the micro yeah. level, what do they each individually look like? I got to believe that's both positive because we can better characterize but also, in some ways, it opens up a door to say, do you really need a separate treatment for every single different cancer? And can right. you ever figure that out? Is, is that the direction we're yeah. going? Or are we using that well, detail to find blanket solutions that help out well, in better? Well, so, so right now, we've got targeted solutions like Keytruda as, a, as an example. Um, and there's many of those. And, and so you're either, you either have the genetic trait or genetic defect that, right. or, that says Keytruda is your drug or everybody else gets treated in a big bucket. And so until we find more uh, subdivisions of that big bucket, we won't find more targeted treatments. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, but eventually we may find five or 10 or 15 targeted right. targeted treatments, which, uh, you know, has, I think it really changes the outcome right. um, of the patients. I have a really close friend who's a physician who has uh, squamous cell carcinoma and um, and it's metastatic, and so they he was you know he had um, you know he he was able to take Keytruda, so he took the Keytruda, and completely changed it. You would not know by looking at this guy that you know he had stage four cancer. Hmm. You would just not know it. And he looks like a. I saw him today in the hall at seven thirty this morning. He looks like a million bucks. Wow. And so you know some of these breakthroughs are really changing the outcome for folks. Yeah. Which yeah. is which is great. Okay. Um, you know, to, to expand on that, uh, you know, there's all kinds of different monitoring technology that we're, that's out there on the market. And I think that's another key area that, um, that, you know, if we can decipher the data, because it's, that's, a, that's the hard part. If we can decipher the data, then it's probably going to give great value to, to treatment. You know, mm -hmm. right, right now, we, we've all become a little neurotic because we're all looking at our phones and every time it vibrates or it beeps. We look at it, and sometimes we look at it because it didn't vibrate or beep, and we want to know what we missed. And <laughs> so, um, you know, some of some of the hazards of all this continuous monitoring, which never before was done outside uh, of the ICU, now we're doing it for people walking around. Is it can kind of change the way you think about things. So, um, and and we do have technology now that's better than your kidneys or your pituitary can. You know, those measurements yep. are more precise yep. than than what those organs really. Uh, require physiologically. So, you know, we can get a little bit ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Well, certainly our ability to, to monitor with a computer, to pick up patterns yeah. that, that we as yeah. humans wouldn't even pick up oh, yeah. has always been something. I mean, I, when I was, when I was in both undergrad and graduate school, you know, the things we called machine vision <laughs> back then, which now yeah. somebody would probably label artificial intelligence yes. was really about how do you use a computer to find patterns and things that that humans probably might pick up, but maybe not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's always been a yeah. big thing. So I think one of the one of the aspects that we're all running across now is we have all of this healthcare data. Yeah. You know, EMRs have yeah. done a great job of amassing data. They haven't done such yeah. a great job of helping us figure out what to do with it. Yeah. And if we can find ways to have computers mine that data and really come up with meaningful steps to follow after that, I think we really have an opportunity there. Oh, I, I agree. I, I think the AI, you know, machine vision uh, technology is wide open. And uh, I know that there's several companies that uh, that are working on uh, applications in the pathology field, in my field. Yep. And uh, 
Interestingly enough, I got a call from a gentleman from um, Israel that I had met about five years ago who happened to be a shot putter at University of Nebraska Lincoln, hmm. was recruited out of Israel to come and, and uh, do the shot put for Nebraska. Yeah. And I met him. I had no idea he was an Israeli, but so he called me up and said, you know, I want to talk to you about this because we've developed a AI solution for prostate cancer detection and biopsies. And, you know, it ter turns out that it it's actually a pretty interesting application. Now, the, 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 the part that's unique about prostate biopsies is, is that they're, they're all done with basically the same needle, so they're all long cores of tissue. So you can line them up and orient them, and you can eliminate a lot of variables uh, in uh -huh. the equation. But they've developed over in Israel a piece of software that's about 99% accurate compared to people for diagnosing uh, prostate cancer. Wow. Um, mo most of the applications so far are able to say, well, we can differentiate normal from abnormal because normal is organized and yep. we can detect that organization. Abnormal is not organized, but we can't tell you what's disorganized about it. Is it inflammatory? Is it cancer? Is it traumatic? Uh -huh. And um, so, so I think that the utility in the future for us, um, you know, in the, maybe the near future, the next five to 10 years is we'll have screening tools right. that'll be able to say, you know, you, you can, you know, rest assured this is normal. Yep, and and we can only be looking at the you know abnormal selected yep. abnormal pieces. Yeah, focus all and the time on the suspects. Exactly, exactly. And given the fact that uh, you know we have a physician shortage, and an overall provider shortage, a huge nursing shortage in North America, then you know th this actually makes it a lot easier if you can use a you can use a tool like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Are, when when you think about investing in the healthcare space. Yep. Uh, something you've done quite a bit of over the, you know, and, and certainly making bets in the healthcare space about who might succeed. Yeah. What are the characteristics you look for in an organization? Well, so so we have a kind of a multi-tiered approach to looking at this, and we really first look at the technology and the market and whether or not the management team has any experience. So, you know, we're, our first three checkboxes are, is it, is it a novel idea? And we'd like to see it be patentable. Although, yep. you know, as much as a patent's great, if you don't have the money to defend it, it's not worth anything. Right. And then is there a huge market for this? You know, there's really, is it a billion dollar market? Not assuming you're going to get the billion dollars, but you know, if you got 10% of a billion dollar market, you've got a, you got a going concern usually. Right. And then are the people who are starting the company, you know, giving, given where the product might be, do they have the skill set to actually, to actually get it done? So, so if there's if there's no product, or it's a prototype, then then the horse you're really betting on is the management team, because if they can't turn that into a into a prototype and then a product, and a, and a product from the you know yours and my consumer perspective, which most people, especially in academics, do not understand what <laughs> that con they don't right. understand the concept, but if they can put that into a product, then you know sky's sky's the limit. Yeah. And, um, you know, this company that we just uh, sold this week, uh, most of the technology came from the University of Michigan. Uh, but the group of people, you know, the, the worthy investment was the group of people who had turned products out several times. And so they had the skill set and the experience to say, okay, we understand, you know, what this technology is about. We understand the market. And now we understand how to package it and make it into a product and sell it 
and sell it for more than it costs us to make it, which is right. another non-academic concept. <laughs> margin? Margin. Profit? Margin, oh. and, margin and profit, <laughs> you know. You yeah, got, those are kind of important. You got to have them. You got yeah, to have them. So what, what, what do you see? So, you know, if market is kind of an important thing, there's markets that exist today. I think there's markets that will exist in the future that maybe are emerging now. Yeah. What, what are those like forces you see in healthcare today that are shaping what the markets will be of tomorrow? What are the kind of those mega healthcare trends that you pay attention yeah. to? Well, so, you know, so we never in healthcare, as much as we think we did, we never worried too much about the cost accounting aspects. Now that's, uh, you know, a broad brushstroke. Let's just say it applies to 75 or 80% of, of what's out there. But people really never uh, kind of kept track of the detail. When it, Keep track of the detail when it comes to patient care. Uh-huh. We're not keeping track of the detail when it comes to finance. So, you know, cost accounting and budgeting and being able to um, adjust a budget uh, you know, in, in rapid fashion, as opposed to the, what we typically do in healthcare is say, we set the budget for a year and the budget can't vary, okay. which is fascinating to me because everything else in our life varies. Right. Everything else in the life of our delivery system and the other ones that I know about in Omaha and the Midwest, that everything varies. You can't, you know, who predicted the coronavirus thing? Nobody predicted the coronavirus thing. Um, so there's all these things that happen that you don't have a handle on. So, you know, software that allows um, a budget variance to occur and you can correct for that or you can adjust for that or, you know, that kind of software is becoming really, really important. We, we put some money into a, a business intelligence, cost accounting kind of software piece uh, 10 years ago, March 1st. And, right. it, and it's, finally coming to, um, it's finally coming to a head where it is... Um, you know, uh, it's getting, it's getting to be a big deal. So now we have a pretty good, we have a really good client base. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's certainly, but I think seeing some of those trends, right. I mean, you know, for the listeners, it's not necessarily about finding them where the market is today. It's a little bit back to the, the Wayne Gretzky statement, right. It's not skating to where the puck is. It's skating to where the puck will be. Exactly. You kind of have to do in, in some of this business from a innovation standpoint. Yeah. So if, if, if you took a step back and said, look, I'm, I'm interested in where healthcare is going to be in five or 10 years, d- describe what you see as the healthcare of a decade so, from now. And, and importantly, yeah. what, what's different from today? Yeah. Well, maybe I could take a, a I could go backwards for a second if, sure. you don't, if you don't mind. So, you know, I've been out of medical school roughly 40 years. So 40 years ago when I was a student and a little bit before, um, you know, people in the hospital, and there were a lot of people in the hospital, and they were in there for a long time. So they, they were um, 58, 60, 62, 65, and they were dying. And now the people in the hospital are in their late 70s, 80s, and, and they're dying. And so when you look at it, we've added on about maybe 20 years of productive lifetime, you know, in, yep. in my, in the last 40 years, we've eliminated mandatory retirement for most organizations, not all. And, you know, and people now say, you know, 60 is the new 40 and you've heard <laughs> things like that. And, and I think, um, you know, physio- physiologically people are in a, in a whole different state. So right. p- part of that probably has to do with um, drugs like Lipitor and that, that class of of drugs, part of it's better education for people, better diet for people, and and so we've really we've changed that. That that change occurred, in my opinion, 
because number one, there's more education, two, availability of information, three, better drugs, and then four is the shift of all the things we did in the inpatient environment now in the outpatient environment. My, my take on this is that we, so, you know, if you were a surgeon and you came out of, out of surgery residency in the early 80s, if you couldn't make a one-foot incision and root around in there, you know, you weren't a surgeon. <laughs> and, and now, if, if you come out of, of surgical training and you can't make, you can't do a procedure with four or five of what we call ports, yep. you know, or incisions about the same diameter um, as your index finger, yep. then you're not a surgeon. And so, and, and we do all these outpatient procedures and we do them um, because the anesthesia will allow us to, to do them. So the old anesthesia, so I've had a couple of surgical procedures and one of my head with the old anesthesia where you're fairly sick for days, you know, and you're in the hospital for days because you're throwing up and you're tired and you're not tired and all that equilibration mm -hmm. in and out of your fat. And now we have drugs like propofol, propofol that, you know, that you can turn on and seconds later you're asleep and you can turn off the drip and seconds later you're awake and you're doing just fine. So you can have all this outpatient surgery. So, so I think we're going to see more and more shift to outpatient surgery. Mm -hmm. We're going to see sicker and sicker people in the hospital, but our number and number one problem is obesity. And of course, you can't get elected by going out and saying, you know, our number one problem is obesity. So people go out and say our number one problem is the health system's broke or the this or the that. Mm -hmm. but, the, but the reality is our number one problem is, is obesity. And, you know, I'm, of course, I'm probably part of the problem. But at the, end, at the end of the day, if we were as lean today and could live as long as we were in the 70s, so, so I had, I cleaned out my father's um, house after he passed away. And my dad was a uh, World War II vet and a depression baby and a pack rat and mm -hmm. things like that. And we found in his stack of stuff, a picture of the Omaha World Herald from, I'm gonna say May or early June of 1975 when the tornado came through and took out the furniture mart. Uh, yep. you know, and the picture was taken at about 78th and Pacific Street and the fascinating part about the cleanup crew, which is about 30 people in the background of this picture, was that they were all skinny and they were all white. Mm. And, and they were, they were, you know, they were all skinny. Every one of them was skinny. I looked at that thing and I said, where did they get these guys? Because that's not, you know, you lined up 100 people today and that's not what you're going right. to, not what you're going to see. Right. So, so I think uh, our ability to try to, to um, change the mass of our universe, so to speak, is something that we're going to have to. I mean, that's going to be the next big. That's going to be the next big frontier. And how we do it, I'm not exactly sure. But yeah, it, if we don't do it, we won't be able to afford it. It's interesting because I think you're. I, I we certainly see the same thing with that. You know, the transition from inpatient to outpatient, more and more things being done in outpatient, that would tend to dictate. Hey, maybe I need smaller hospitals, that with more. I'll call it more flexible space to be routed to the things that we need, whether that be more primary care, whether yeah. that be more outpatient services, whether that be more imaging, whatever that may be. Yeah. But then I think we also look at some of those mega trends of the aging of the baby boomers, certainly obesity, uh, which says, you know, yeah. yeah, you may have fewer procedures done in the hospital as a, as a total portion but just the sheer number of procedures may dictate that we can't make hospitals a whole lot smaller anytime soon. Oh yeah, I agree. If anything, you know, bigger. Yeah.
Yeah, well, with the aging population and, uh, you know, the, the way the technology has evolved. So there's a lot of, you know, kind of next category is what's, what's happening in surgical technology. And we've had a, a long-term project at University of Nebraska Med Center in Nebraska Medicine around uh, robotic surgical technology and developing mm -hmm. some of the technology on campus, which has been spun out into a, a startup company, which is fairly well-funded, runs out of Santa Clara, California, called Virtual Incision. And they have intra-abdominal robotic devices that they can use to, um, to do all kinds of different procedures. Mm. So different than, than the current surgical robot that everybody has, which is called the Da Vinci right. robot, um, you know, this is a little more specialized application. The Da Vinci is, um, is kind of a, you know, if you want to think about it this way, a utility robot. And these new robots that are being developed are really specific use robots. And so... Okay. Um, I think we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of that. We're gonna see a lot of that happening. Yeah, I think assistive assistive technologies, right? Just exactly. However you define that, but yeah. things that make things you know have have less morbidity, you know, lower mor morbidity rates. Certainly, lower mortality is always the goal, but lower morbidity rates. Things that drive efficiency. Uh, you know, as you were talking about, you know, if we if we've got some sort of computer aided yeah. detection, whether it be in the pathology space or the imaging space. Yeah. The more and more a computer can help us be more efficient, yeah. you know, I, I don't think there's any physician out there that needs to worry about their role going away because we still need the human involved in, oh, in yeah. assembling the, yeah. the information, but it's about making them yeah. all more efficient and practicing more top of license as we go forward. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. You know, I, I, we, there's still a projection out there that we're going to be short 150,000 plus physicians in the next five years. And there have been some new medical schools start up but, uh, you know, when they start up there, 60, 80, 100 kids in a medical school class, which means you're going to crank out 60, 80, 100 physicians, and it doesn't make a big dent given the, you know, the number of folks that are right. retiring on, a, on an annual basis. Yeah, so, I don't think anybody's going to start that many medical schools that are, that no, are new. No, no. But if you, go to, if you go to other countries and look at other countries, which the, everybody's delivery system's a little bit different, you know, with, with pick on China for a minute. You know, China has uh, folks they call barefoot doctors, where really are army medics. If you want to look at their training and what they do, they're really army medics. And there's a lot of things that they can do. They work for the government, mm -hmm. and they're stationed all around, and they're your first line of defense. So, you know, one of the things that that may not be popular, but we ought to think about is other ways to you know, to deliver this care. I mean, there, there are hands-on requirements, so telehealth's not going to yep. solve everything. Yeah. Well, I think we're, you know, the, the, the growth in, you know, the, the alternative provider, whether that be a PA or a nurse practitioner, uh, kind of those mid-levels as they've been known, mm -hmm. that certainly yep. is, is a step in that direction. But I think until we really get a change in public opinion around what it, what's required and what's needed for care, yep. Uh, it'll be hard yeah. for us to get there, but yeah. Well, one of the things that we've um, that I've suggested to our dean in the College of Pharmacy is we find a way to train pharmacists to do more clinical things because there seems yep. to be a lot more pharmacists deployed in distant sites than uh, than physicians or PAs or nurse practitioners. And you know, no, no everybody who goes to pharmacy school is smart. Mm -hmm. You know, so so they can, and this is all learned behavior. So you're not born with this. You you get trained to do this. Then we could train the pharmacist to do quite a few, to do quite a few things. Yeah, yeah. That's actually a, a, a novel concept. 
Yeah. I, I think it'd be interesting just because of knowing, you know, rural Nebraska, rural Kansas. Um, there's a lot of opportunity to use other, you know, other healthcare professionals, right? That yeah. that that could be used to serve a, a real direct caregiving role. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I any yeah. any other kind of comments? Anything you think the the listeners ought to know? Uh, really about your view on healthcare or, or even uh, technology and investing? Well, um, you know, number one, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. You know, my, my, as much as we complain about, about healthcare, and, you know, it's a lot of it's in the political campaigning arena, you know, health, healthcare in the United States is fabulous. I mean, we, we do, I think, a really good job. Uh, we, we owned a company in Canada for about 11 years, and so... As much as people believe that Canada is a single-payer system, it's not. There's a mandatory Health Canada contribution, and then you can't hire an employee, especially in a tech business, if you don't have supplemental insurance for the Health Canada. And then their their third largest payer group is self-pay, and it's enabled by all of these surgical centers and MRIs and CTs on the border where they come across the border of the United States and get their uh, procedures and get their mm-hmm. hips and knees because... They have to wait up there. So we, we have we have a really open system, and we have um, you know pretty good turnaround time for services. And it's not it's not perfect, but it's you know all the places I've been, it's the best. It's I I couldn't couldn't agree more. I think we've done a a great job with what we have. Well, I want to thank you again for being here. You bet. Uh, thank you, Rod Markin. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest, and well, to our well. listeners, thank you for tuning in. Uh, We look forward to talking with you more next time. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. This is one of many resources Castling provides to help you stay current on all things imaging. We hope you'll tune in again soon. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Castling nor Siemens Healthineers. This podcast is for informational purposes only. (laughs) 